welcome back. Tonight we're reading from Mark 5, and it'd be great if you can grab out your phone or a Bible from the pew. It's on page 1006 if you're grabbing a pew Bible. So I'll give you a moment to do that. All right, from Mark 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. But Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Good evening, great to be here. Let me just pray as we commence. Father, we do thank you for your word and as we come to it tonight, I pray that we'd have hearts that are open to hear what you want to say to us. And Lord, I do pray that you would really strengthen and deepen uh, the reality and the practice of prayer in our lives as we think about the spiritual nature of life we're caught up in, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I start today... Uh, I want to take you back to 1994. It was my first year in ministry as a ordained minister. Uh, I was living down in a place called Unindera, which is on the southern outskirts of Wollongong. And I had two ch- children at that time. I've got three now. Uh, Sophie and Rebecca had been born. And I was rung by one of the church families who later I became friends with, David and Julie. And they had an unusual phone call with me, which, let me just say, I was not used to. Um, they said, look, Bruce, could you come and do a pastoral visit for our neighbours? And I said, sure. And they said, look, I need to tell you, the reason is because they've got a ghost in their house. And they're not Christian, they'd like you to come and deal with it. And I went, oh, sure. 
And I remember thinking, I don't remember the talk at Moore College on pastoral visits with homes that had ghosts. <laughs> we never had one of those talks. Um, and it was a nice family, husband, uh, he was a used car salesman, Alan Sally, wife, two kids at school, and they had a ghost. Could I help deal with them? Now, I won't bore you with the details, but we had a very interesting visit, well, I did, and um, ended up praying for them, praying for the house. And the good news is that the long story, the whole family came to faith, which was great, and the ghost left the house. And in the power of Christ, it was just a great story. And every now and again as a pastor, you encounter situations that remind you that the world that we live in here is not just flesh and blood. And I don't know if you've had any experiences like that, but I have through my ministry. And it reminds me that there is not just a world of flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual world that we live in. And there's a world of darkness and evil that is a part of that spiritual world. And just as this world that you can touch is real, so is the spiritual world real. And I start this way recording that story and reflecting on it because in Mark's Gospel today we come to a story about an exorcism, a man with demons. We just had it read to us, it's called the demoniac. And I've called today's message dark reality, spiritual encounters with Jesus. And there is a darkness about what we're talking about tonight. It's worth acknowledging that. And there's a dark reality to this. And just like we had spiritual adventures with Jesus on the high seas, boating adventures with Jesus last week, this week it's of a different nature. There's a sense of spiritual encounter that takes place. And I've got one very important question for us tonight as we think about this topic of the spiritual world that we live in, as we think particularly about this story of exorcism. And it's a very important pastoral question. How important is prayer to you? That's my question for all of us tonight as we think about the world that we live in. How important is prayer to you? And in our journey through chapters 4 to 8 of Mark's Gospel that we're going through this term, there is this very powerful and striking story. It's one of the longest ones in terms of a spiritual encounter with the forces of darkness that you get all through Mark's Gospel. And there's a weightiness to what happens in this story and the issues that we're going to talk about. And there's three things I want to talk about. It's evil encountered, evil confronted, and evil overcome. And so let's think first of all about evil encountered. And if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to have them open. There's some under the uh, seats in front of you, if you can get them out. That'd be a great thing to do. And uh, we're at Mark chapter 5. If you've got them on your phones, devices, that's also a great thing to do. And let's have a look at Mark chapter 5. We're reading from verse 1 to 20. And I'm just going to work our way through as we go through the talk. Uh, verse 1, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, it's worth saying, this is the boat trip that Nathan was talking about last week with the wild storm that Jesus calmed. When they get to the end of it, they end up in this region called the Gerasenes. We know because of the pigs and the pig herding, this is not a Jewish area, it is a Gentile area. There's no way the Jews would have had uh, kind of a whole flock of pigs because it was deemed unclean. And they get out, verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Worth noting two things. Um, there's different language used in the New Testament for people who are possessed by demons. One is an impure spirit in them. Another way you could talk about is demons. They're the same reality. 
But secondly, they're amongst the tombs. He actually lands at the cemetery. So they're not at the village where all the people would have been gathering. They're rather at this kind of barren place, which is kind of an interesting place to encounter evil. And there's tombs there. It may have been rock tombs where they literally have carved out of the rocks tombs to lay the bodies. And this is where this man is roaming. Verse 3, the man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night after night, or day after night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he'd cry out and cut himself with stones. A few things to note about what is taking place. He has been possessed by an evil spirit. And evil spirits absolutely can control people physically. You see this here, and destructively. And he has such a supernatural strength that the village men could not contain him. Chains could not hold him. He literally broke them. And when you're dealing with the forces of darkness, there is a dark reality and power to them that is not to be messed with. And this is a man whose life is now in absolute turmoil. And if you'd seen him, you would have been afraid of him you would have thought him to be crazy. He had this supernatural strength. And the man had been shunned by all of his friends, family, neighbours. And Christian writer Max Licardo wrote this about him in trying to explain him to a modern audience. He's the man your mum told you to avoid. He's the fellow the police routinely lock up. He's the deranged man who stalks neighbourhoods and murders families. This is the face that fills the screens during the evening news. And today, sadly, you might find a person like this in a psychiatric unit. And it was no different for the Palestinians of the day. They had unsuccessfully tried to contain him. They couldn't do it. And so they literally threw him out. And he now roams in the cemetery and lives there as this scary man. I want to stop at this point and just think about demon possession. And I know in just saying those two words together, demon possession, I'm raising a topic which many will have questions about. And I know today there may be some, when you hear me speak of demon possession, you're thinking, is this really real today? Do people today actually get demon possessed? And your natural intuitions about life and the world are saying, this story doesn't fit my reality. And let me say, if that's how you're feeling, you would not be alone in this. Now, let me say, that is typical of people who've come out of a Western Anglo-Saxon culture. If you have a chat to Dave Endormana after the service, he will tell you of his own experience of his father exercising demons week in, week out as a minister of the gospel in Burundi. He said they literally would turn up at his doorstep at 6am in the morning wanting to be freed from the demons. And this was just a regular occurrence for him. But it's not here in Australia. And I know for many it doesn't fit our reality. And it's interesting because why doesn't it? Well, because we've got a worldview here in the country of Australia and in Western worlds typically that is what you'd call naturalism. And I want to give you a concrete example of that. It's from the Professor of Psychology at Swinburne University of Technology. And he was interviewed by Philip Clark on an ABC program called Nightlife. 
and they were talking about diagnosing mental health issues. And this is what he said. Unverified false beliefs, like a parent's belief that a child was possessed by the devil, is an absolutely archetypal positive symptom of a psychotic condition of the parent, not of the child, and psychologists would have no trouble generally identifying that that person as having a mental illness. So let me just deconstruct that. What it's saying is, if you as a parent thought your child was possessed by an evil spirit in our world here in Australia, and in the Western world, the psychological reflection would be that you as a parent are mentally ill, to think that. Now, he went on to say, there are some allowances for what might be called culturally accepted beliefs in a person's culture, but clearly he considered believing in something like demon possession is like believing in fairy tales or mythology and basically an inferior and inaccurate and false belief. And so to stand here tonight, he would just say, this is ridiculous, what are you talking about? This is just a man who had a psychosis. And I'm not saying this to be critical of Professor Murray. I'm bringing it to us to just give an example of a reflection of the philosophical worldview air that you breathe. This is what is the worldview of Australia. It's called naturalism. And naturalism is defined this way. It's the philosophical belief that everything arises from natural properties and causes and supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. In other words, they're not possible. And so to speak of them and to say I've experienced them is to, in a sense, to be deluded or mentally not well. This is the air we breathe in our culture. Talk about demons and evil spirits and ghosts is to talk nonsense. Today, while many people may acknowledge the spiritual realm to existence theoretically, functionally, we don't take it into account for how we understand the world we live in. And let me say, having been involved in numbers of these cases over my time, the spiritual world of darkness is very real. Very real. And I want to give you a paradigm for thinking about how you construct your worldview. And it's actually from Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And that chapter and that section is a very well-known part of the Bible. It's the hymn that the early church probably put together as a sort of creed and song to talk about the Lord Jesus. And you may well remember it. It talks about how Jesus, even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, humbled himself even to death on the cross before God exalted him to the highest place. And I'll read to you from verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, that's the resurrection, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I want you to note the colours there. Heaven, I've put blue, symbolic of the sky, the sense that God and the heavens are above us. Green, that's the colour of our world we live in. Flesh and blood, earth, soil, water, and red under the earth. Jesus is saying he's the name that's above every name, the heavens, the earth, and the underworld, the realm of the devil, the realm of spiritual forces. And there is a world that we live in here that's physical. There's a world above us where God reigns. And there is a world, so to speak, I'm speaking symbolically, underneath us 
where there are the forces of darkness, and they are real. This is the world of Satan or the devil. He has his host of evil spirits. It's a very well, very real place. And the thing to note is these worlds intersect. God is absolutely, by his Holy Spirit, at work here in this world. And so is the devil, absolutely at work in this world. And possession of a person by demons takes place, it's a bit like we open a doorway to this world underneath us. And that happens when people dabble in alternate spiritualities and pray to open themselves up to alternate spiritualities and spirits. And behind all of those things is actually the devil. He does it to deceive people and he enters in and can take possession of people. It's absolutely real. And one of the things I say to people is do not dabble in alternate spiritualities and as you've come to Christ and you've had some sort of background with it, get rid of it, burn it, destroy it, get it out of your house and out of your life because it actually is a potential doorway for the devil to enter in. And it's also worth saying Christians cannot be possessed by evil spirits. We have the spirit of Christ in us but we absolutely can be harassed by the devil and tempted by the devil and caught up in warfare with the devil. Absolutely. Satan has a real power and he will use it to take people away from God and the gospel and lead them to hell. And this poor man in Mark 5 somehow came to be possessed by evil spirits and what you see is they're absolutely destroying his life. Well, that was evil encountered. Let's think about evil confronted. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, this is the possessed man, the demoniac, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, please don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. So what you've got recorded first is the demoniac's reaction, but what actually took place first in time is Jesus' command. He says to him, he sees that the man is possessed and says, come out you impure spirit and the response of the evil spirit is not to fight it's to beg that's the fascinating thing what do you want from me don't torture me Jesus asked him what is your name my name is legion he replied for we are many and he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area now there's all sorts of questions which are raised by that I'm not going to go into them here what we do learn is this the demon absolutely knows who Jesus is and that's the remarkable thing in Mark's gospel. We as people are blinded to his incredible majesty and his reality but the demons all know who he is. You see it in Mark chapter 1, the first evil spirit confronted by Jesus. He knows who Jesus' identity is. It's the same here, Jesus, son of the most high guy. He knows exactly who he is and he knows the authority that he has and he begs him, don't torture us. But the thing to note is with a mere word... This multitude of demons are under Jesus' control and his authority. And just like with a word he calmed the ocean last week, with a word he casts the demons out. Look at what follows, verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. You see, they're doing that because they think, oh, we'll somehow be able to continue to survive here in this region. 
He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Jesus, in a sense, knew what was going to happen and they are destroyed. They return to hell from where they've come. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. I mean, you can imagine the commotion. Their livelihood has just gone off the cliff and died. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And it's fascinating, they were afraid. They're not rejoicing, they're just in fear. Like, and the reason is, it's like the disciples last week who, after the storm has come, they're just going, who is this guy? That even the wind and the waves are blowing. The villagers are saying, same question, who is this guy that can cast the demons out? Who is he? And they're afraid. Evil is real. And it is personal. It's not like Star Wars where you have kind of the forces of good and bad that kind of have a yin and a yang through history. No, it's a personal force. Satan leads his army. But the thing is, it is no match for Jesus, the Son of God. And the demons quiver at his voice and they're cast out with a word. And what do we learn from this? Well, it's interesting, though Satan and evil exists... There are not two forces vying for control in this world that we live in. In fact, when it comes to the devil, there's hardly ever a battle in Scripture. I can only think of one time through all of Scripture where there is any sense of a battle or a struggle being portrayed, and it's not between God or Jesus and demons. It's actually Michael, the archangel, has a struggle with another demonic being in the book of Daniel. That's the only time. But whenever you see Jesus confronting the devil, he wins hands down. And I say this because in some modern Christian literature, in some circles, it's often portrayed that the match or the battle between God and the devil is like a heavyweight boxing match that goes down to the 12th round and you're wondering who's going to win. Seriously, it's a one-round match. Jesus steps in the ring and knocks him out first blow. It's all over. Though the effects of the devil are real, God is always totally in control. And I say this to you because one thing I want to say to all of us, and particularly those who are young in the faith, is you are not to be afraid of the devil. You are to be wary of him. You are to understand the way he works. Because he will try and trap you and tempt you. He's the father of lies. He works to blind the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel. He will work to bring temptation, help us to resist evil is what Jesus prays. So he will absolutely try and take you away from Christ. But you are not to be afraid of him because in Christ, you actually have the victory. And when Christ died on the cross, he conquered sin, he rose again and he is victorious over Satan. And that's why we need to stand firm in our identity in Christ and take hold of who Christ has made us to be. And secondly, we have prayer so that we can call upon God to work by His Spirit in our lives to protect us and guide us and deliver us from evil. Well, that is evil confronted. Let's think thirdly about evil overcome. 
There are a number of fascinating issues to the story. I'm sure you're sitting there wondering about the pigs. Why does he send a pack of pigs over the cliff? And I'm going to disappoint numbers of people here today I have all day. I'm just not going to talk about it. <laughs> and the reason is, as fascinating as it is, it's actually not the key point of the story. On that particular incident, the key point is Jesus' authority over the evil spirits. But the way the story ends is not there. The way it ends with a tale of twin beggars. Firstly, you've got the fearful beggars. And I say beggars because we read in verse 16, those who'd seen it told the people about what happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead or beg Jesus to leave their region. Same word, pleading, begging. And the people are just afraid. And they're, they're in awe, afraid of Jesus' power, but they just like, no, please go. And it's such a contrast to what happens with this man, who's also begging. So the first group begged Jesus to leave, but the second one's very different. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him. So he doesn't want to kick him out. He goes, can I please go with you? Because he is so thankful and in awe of what God, through Jesus, has done. But know what happens? Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. And I want you to think about these two responses of begging, one that Jesus would leave them, the other that he might follow him. This is the first, by my estimation, recorded Christian missionary. A missionary is someone who's sent out by God to tell the good news. And this is the first one in Scripture, who's sent out by Jesus. And just think about who is the first missionary. He's this crazy guy who was demon-possessed, but has been totally saved, healed, transformed through the work of Jesus and his mercy and grace towards him. And he is told, go out now and tell all the people what? What the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And I just think it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel that who is the first person commissioned to be a missionary? It's someone whose life was totally transformed by Jesus. And what he goes out to do is not tell people how to live. He goes out to tell them what God has done in his life. And friends, that's what we're commissioned to do. We're not told to go out and tell people how to live. We're told to go and share what God has done in us and the great news of the gospel and to call people to follow him. It's just amazing who God picks to be his spokesperson. But I want to go back to my original question and think now broadly and step back from this story and think, what do we learn from this? This story of the exorcism of the demoniac and the reality of evil and demons. And I want to come back to that question, how important is prayer to you? And I want you to think deeply about that. Because when you go through Mark's Gospel, um, you might miss this, but the backdrop for Jesus' ministry is this reality of this spiritual warfare that is going on. 
and the spiritual darkness that wants to stop Jesus and the spiritual forces that are opposed to him. In the introduction, which is Mark 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 1 through to 13, it finishes this way. Jesus is baptised, he's thrust out into the wilderness and Satan is there tempting him. And that's the way Satan will work. He will try and tempt you to take you away. Jesus' first public ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, it's in a synagogue and a man stands up in the synagogue and he's possessed by an evil spirit. And Jesus exercises him, he throws that spirit out. Mark 1.34, his second ministry engagement, amongst other things, involved driving out demons from people. Mark 3, verse 11, we read this, it's almost like an aside. He says, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And then interestingly, we saw a couple of weeks ago when I preached on the parable of the soils and the sower and the seeds... Do you remember what is the reason the first group of people never take hold of the gospel? Mark 4 verse 15, some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown, as soon as they hear it, what happens? Satan comes and takes away the word, he steals it and that's the work of the devil, he steals the truth from us, he's the father of lies, he brings temptation to distract us. And this is the backdrop for Jesus' ministry. And let me say, that backdrop has not changed. It is the backdrop for our lives. And this is the reality of the world that we live in. God is real. Jesus has risen from the dead. Angels exist, but the devil does as well. And he will be seeking to steal and to tempt and to take the truth away from you. And he blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of God in the gospel. And in that world, to live and minister, there are two things that are vital. One is to understand the gospel and proclaim it, but also is to pray. Prayer is fundamental. It's the tool given by us, to us by God to use. And we fight the battle, we gain the victory, we call for protection. How? Through prayer. And friends, we've got physical bodies. And medicine helps us enormously. And let me say, I'm from a family of medical people. My wife is a nurse. My parents were medical specialists. They do great things. And they treat physical problems. It's worth acknowledging that. We have psychiatry and counselling and psychology because we also have minds. And those people are wonderful as well in helping treat the ailments of our minds. But let me say there is more going on in humans than what you can reduce to the physical and mental dimensions of life. We are not just body and mind, we are body, mind and spirit. And all three are engaged together. You are a physical body, you have a mind, a personality, but you also have a spirit, a soul. And the devil will be absolutely at work. And when you read 1 John, it's a fascinating book to read. It kind of turns things on its head. And at the end of the book, letter, he says this in chapter 5, verse 19, 1 John, we know that the whole world is under the control of the devil. And it's just this aside as he finishes the letter. We just know it. The, the devil is in control of this world. Now, you think about that psychologist who I mentioned, he would just think this is crazy talk. But no, this is what God is saying to us. And here's the thing, all of us, Every single one of us here tonight and every single one who lives on this planet 
He's caught up in a spiritual battle and we're in a spiritual world and we are in over our heads. There are forces that we battle with every day that we cannot see, that we are affected by, and they are greater than we can do battle with in our own physical strength. And when you see people falling away, it's not just a natural thing. The devil is at work in that, to draw people away from fellowship with other Christians, from reading their Bibles, from believing the gospel. And we need to know this, and we need this insight to make sense of ourselves and our world and to make sense of how we solve the problems that we encounter in this world. The problems of our society and our church will not be solved merely by education or counselling or medication or human, account- human accountability, even though each one of those is very important and does a great job and has a role to play. Evil also needs to be confronted and defeated to ultimately solve problems. And spiritual forces need to be defeated, and that is what the gospel does. And that is why we pray, because we proclaim the victory in Christ and we pray for the Spirit to be working powerfully. And it's interesting, when you think about the gospel, we often talk about the fact that Jesus died for sins. Tick, yep, agree. Uh, We'll often frame it another way which is that Jesus died to bring us back to God yep tick a a relational understanding the gospel but here's what John also says in his letter the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the world of the devil and I want to just stop and just reflect on this for us here in Manly it's a massive issue for us and the reason is because we're so educated and we just breathe this air of naturalism I remember reading the census data for Manly. We have twice the education levels on average than the average Australian. And what it does is this. Our churches and St Matthew's Church can end up running a book reading club. We think that if we win the war of ideas, then we've won. Or they can be about proficiency. And if we can just manage the property and the finances and the ministry better and have good management in place, then we will grow. Or the marketing, if we can just look more attractive, we will grow. And let me just say, I am not against Bible reading. I am all for it. We absolutely need to be committed to it because that's how you'll learn God and you'll understand Him and He will speak to you. I'm not against good management. We don't want to rabble here. We actually need to be organised. And I'm not against trying to put our best foot forward in promoting St Matthew's in the community. But let me just say this, none of it matters, none of it, if we don't pray. If we don't confront and deal with the reality that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, it's against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what this means is prayer has to be a major piece of our ministry. It's one of our core values. And it's got to be a major piece for how we think about how we do life. That we start the day, we have it through the day, and we end the day by praying. And I'd put it to you that if you don't pray, then functionally, you don't believe in the reality of the spiritual struggle that we go through. You see, why do you pray? Because you actually believe that 
our battle is not against flesh and blood. And friends, if I can just stop and just say this to you, this community in Manly, which we live in, is blinded by the devil to the reality of the gospel. And this community is on the slow and narrow and broad road to hell. And friends, we need to be on our knees praying for the gospel to come in power to break through their blindness so that they see the glory of God. It's why we start every year on our knees praying and fasting. It's why I turn up here at 7 o'clock every Tuesday morning and pray for you and the ministry and this place we call Manly. And there's something so humbling about it that we literally just sit there and pray and you can't do anything else but what we're doing is we're acknowledging that God is the one who will win the battle. And there is a power to prayer that until you've seen it and experienced it, you just don't realise. And friends, I didn't come here just to have a good time. I came here because I wanted to see this place grow and people come to faith. And I know there's lots of reasons why people can't come down here at 7 o'clock on a a Tuesday morning. There's all sorts of very valid reasons. But the fact that there's only about 15 of us has always left me wondering, do we actually really believe in prayer? And this week I sent my weekly email out. Now, you may not have read it, but the title was A Call to Pray. Because I thought, I realise a whole bunch of people can't make it down here on Tuesday. Maybe you'd just like to get the prayer points to pray for the ministry. And I send them out every week, and I've got about 40 people I send it to. And I said, if you would like to join in praying from your home, just email me back, I'll put you on the list, and you'll get the prayer points for the week. As of this morning, six people responded. Six. And I'm not saying that because I want you to feel sorry for me. I raise that because I want to raise the question, really, how important is prayer to you? Do you really understand the battle we're caught up in? And the nature of heaven and hell and spiritual forces that are opposed to us. And the power of prayer in Jesus' name in that struggle. I'm going to stop now and I want you to think about that question. Paul says this at the end of his description of the spiritual struggle we're in. He says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Let's stop and think. We're going to have a moment to be quiet and just to pray and reflect on that question in our life. And then after that, the band's going to come up and lead us in a couple of songs.